You have reached Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey, a ministry and podcast of the Discover Young Adults Ministry at the Preston Crest Church of Christ in Dallas, Texas. We meet at 945 on Sunday mornings, and we have small groups all throughout the week. We are located at Preston Road and Highway 635 in North Dallas. My name is Jacob Hawk. I'm the Young Adults Minister and the host of this podcast. It doesn't matter if you are single, dating, if you want to be dating, if you're married, if you want to be married, or if you're divorced, or if you're trying to figure out at what stage of life you are passing through. At the Discover Young Adults Ministry, we want to help you discover life, discover love, and discover the Lord. If I can help you or serve you in any way, or if I can pray for you, please email me at jacob at pressandcrest.org. We are glad to have you back with us today here at Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey. My good friend Keith Harris is back with us. We are in a series right now over the pastoral epistles. We had to take a small break because Keith and his family went to our nation's capital. His son was a participant in a national spelling bee, and uh, Keith was up there just to watch because Keith really doesn't know how to spell himself. Um <laughs> But Keith is back in Texas. I won't ask him to spell that for us, but uh does have two syllables that gets above his pay grade. But Keith is back with us. Keith, we're, we're glad that you're here today. Oh, thanks, Jacob. I'm so glad to be a part of this and looking forward to our discussion today. How was your time in Washington, minus your trip home? I know that was not real smooth. Yeah, it was great. It's always uh, interesting to see uh, Washington, D.C. and the history um behind our country and some of the buildings that have been around for a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. I enjoy uh, the background behind, uh, you know, everything that, that went into making our nation what it is today. Mm -hmm. um, but we had a good time. Good. Well, I'm glad y'all were able to go and enjoy some family time. So we're going to jump right into the text today. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, just go ahead and take the elephant out of the room. We're going to be looking at a passage today that has become, in recent months and years, very controversial, but talking about the different gender roles in the church and the fact that Paul addressed this with the young preacher Timothy 2,000 years ago and the fact that Paul roots his instructions all, all the way back to creation tells us then that we should not be surprised that uh, this is something that we're discussing today. I think every generation has asked some of these questions. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, Keith, I'll go ahead and read the uh, eight verses we'll be talking about today, and then we'll get into the questions. 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. 
but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Keith will begin there in verse 8 when Paul says that I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. What in the world does that mean? So certainly we see in um, different uh, religious settings, uh, and particularly I see it more in uh, times of praise where uh, different individuals, if they are so moved, may, you know, raise their hand or lift their hand uh, toward the uh, the sky, as it were, toward God. Uh, and essentially, that's what a lot of people have in their minds with this idea of lifting up holy hands. We're lifting our hands toward God. And so um, I know that in, in other religious settings that that seems to be, you know, frowned upon. Um, and, you know, I think people have different views as to, to what the intent behind that is. It seems to me that what Paul is saying here, when he's talking about desiring that in every place, uh, as he returns again, discussion to, um, our praying to God, it's in that context that he says lifting up holy hands or lifting holy hands without anger or without quarreling. This has more to do with our attitude as we approach the throne of God in prayer. Um, but just with the very practical lifting up of hands, um, as I said a moment ago, it, you know, we see it most where people are, you know, raising their hands up even above their their head level. Um, whereas this was probably more of something that would have been, uh, you know, hands in front of the chest, you know, kind of out in that area with the palms lifted upward. Um, and the thing that I've always had in my mind with regard to the lifting of holy hands um, is, you know, when I asked my kids when they were young to go and wash their hands before they came to sit down at the table to eat. And, and when they come running back, I, I'll say, you know, did you wash your hands? And, and they would turn them up, their palms up to me to show me that their hands were clean. Mm-hmm. That's really, uh, in my understanding, the intent behind the lifting of holy hands is that we are approaching the throne of God with a pure heart, showing him that our hands are clean. We're, we're uh, surrendering ourselves to him in that way. That seems to be, at least in, in my understanding, where Paul is going here. And, and we see it through the rest of the section that you read, um, you know, given the perspective of our attitude or our demeanor as we approach God. Yeah, those are some great thoughts. Um, very symbolic. I love that illustration of your children um, showing their hands before they have to eat to make sure that they wash their hands, which Lindsay still makes you do that as well. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. every, every few days she has to check that you've showered too. <laughs> but uh, I think this is more a matter of, of the heart and the attitude than the physical posture. Um, because when you read through the Bible, we have several examples of different physical postures of people when they would pray, 
they would have their hands spread out, they would bow their head. Um, the psalmist uses the terminology of lifting his eyes heavenward, which was symbolic of my help comes from the Lord, I'm dependent upon the Lord. Lifting hands in prayer is kind of that same symbolism of I'm completely dependent upon God, right? So the physical posture here is not the emphasis. I think I think right. there's a greater emphasis, one that you mentioned there of everywhere, kind of the uniformity. It needs to be done this way in every place, mm-hmm. um, setting the standard here for this is what every worship gathering should look like in the church. Keith, you and I both know there was a day when uh, really before we were alive or maybe in our parents' and grandparents' generation that you could pull off on the side of the road and visit any Church of Christ and expect to see the same thing, generally Mm -hmm. speaking. Those days are long gone. Um, But it appears like from Scripture that Paul wanted churches everywhere to operate by some similar standards, and this would be one of them. Um, And the other thing I would add to this that I think is interesting, and I would love your take on this, Keith, if you look at the Greek language there, when he says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, he does not use the Greek word anthropos that just refers to mankind in general. Rather, he's very specific with the gender here. He's speaking to uh, the male audience, and I think kind of, as you indicated, kind of sets the stage for teaching and submission with with prayer. He doesn't use the word anthropos, talking about all people. He uses the word specifically for the males there in Ephesus. Yeah, and I think that's purposeful, uh, given the fact that what we have in verse 9, where he says, likewise also Mm -hmm. uh, the women, Mm -hmm. and, and obviously speaking specifically concerning women. And so, uh, rather than, as you said, him addressing mankind as a whole, um, anthropos, mankind, uh, he's very much, as you said, specific to men in this uh, in this setting, praying, lifting the holy hands. Again, our symbolic uh, approach to God, our demeanor before him. And, and this plays out through the rest of this section, um, the symbolism and the, the understanding that we're being called to something very specific here, though at times we, we tend to push back against what uh, Paul said, maybe not we individually, but we collectively uh, in the religious realm push back here because we say, well, this was probably more cultural, and because our culture is different today, it's, it doesn't mean the same today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think it. I don't, I don't think it has here. And again, coming back to again the the question that you asked or the comment that you made regarding the specific calling out men here, uh, I th- I think that's purposeful, and I think we should uh, adhere to that even today. Mm-hmm. Uh, continuing on, but remembering that this is very symbolic regarding our attitude or our approach to the throne of God. Absolutely. Well, let's. Uh, in conclusion, with that, we don't need to be posture police and say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" They've lifted a hand and while they're praying, it's out of control. I, exactly. I think we would agree. Uh, this is a matter of the heart, not of the physical stature. But the emphasis is on male leadership here. 
Um, let's jump to verse 9. Like you said, he says, likewise, because he's obviously now speaking uh, to women. Mm-hmm. And he tells them that they need to dress modestly. Now, any preacher worth their salt realizes he does not need to talk to women about dressing modestly. That's not <laughs> that's not his place, at least if he wants to keep his job. But right. let's just talk in generalities here. What, what do you think Paul's getting at when he's uh, talking about dressing modestly? Well, again, I would I would say that this while it you know while it would indicate um, apparel, you know the actual clothing or apparel uh, of a, a woman, he deals more I think with her heart and uh, her again her demeanor before God, uh, and so. Um, you know, adorning themselves or uh, having this kind of presence about themselves that is becoming of one who is a follower of Jesus. I think that's where he's getting at. And so it's this idea of having a respectful apparel, having uh, a modest demeanor. I think that's really the heart of where he's getting at. And again, um, very symbolic in what he's saying here. Um, with regard to our approach to the throne of God. And so for men, it, it's one of um, a very humble posture before God. God, I need you. I'm dependent upon you completely. And the same ought to be for women, that they are not, um, there, there's not a sense of ostination within their personality, their dress, but rather this is one that's a humble um, attitude, a humble life, and I think would include apparel, mm-hmm. but really here focusing on not exalting self. Again, this is a heart issue, not exalting self, but rather approaching God humbly, acknowledging Him. And uh, and I think that may be where that, that word respectable comes into verse 9. Right. Uh, themselves in respectable apparel. That's the heart. Right. Because modesty is obviously a very relative term. What a church in Texas might believe to be modest would and probably be very different than a church in Southern California or even on a greater scale around the world. What we think is modest in a church in India or Pakistan or Australia may be a totally different standard. So the only thing that's not relative when it comes to modesty, as you're saying, is the heart. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the same heart that has glorified God since creation, a heart that wants to magnify God uh, rather than self. And that's really important to point out as we read through this, because if we look at everything with just the letter of the law mentality, well, we've got to start throwing out the gold. We've got to start throwing out the pearls and the braided hair and the expensive clothes. This is not a matter, just like with the praying with lifted hands. This is not a physical regimen. This is a spiritual uh, principle. If you are trying to bring attention to yourself, you know, modesty is not just a lack of clothing. It can also be too much clothing. You know, it's just as immodest to have a very extravagant outfit as it is to have very little clothing on. The point is where are you wanting people to focus on you or on God? Yeah. 
The word that's translated uh, modest is cosmios, and that word really means orderly or decent. Mm -hmm. So is my demeanor, or uh, in this particular passage, uh, is a woman's demeanor, is it modest? Is it orderly or decent? Or is it one that is exalting self uh, rather than that humble demeanor before God? Right. Okay, well, let's talk about the uh, million-dollar question here, uh, because I don't think women dressing modestly is as controversial in 2022 as uh, the women's role in the public assembly. Um, He says that a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Once again, Paul says she must be silent. So, Keith, what constitutes women teaching or having authority over a man? Very good question. (laughs) And uh, there would be some people that would say, well, this is rather subjective is, you know, because if a a church leader, uh, an elder gives a a woman uh, an opportunity to uh, teach or to have some kind of public role in the assembly or uh, in another setting for that matter, then she is not uh, taking the, you know, the leadership from away from the male, but Mm -hmm. rather simply going through uh, what has been um, prescribed to her by that leadership. So there's, there's that spectrum. Now, what constitutes a woman teaching? I think for most people, they would uh, they would see, well, she's standing in front of a, a an assembled group, uh, imparting some kind of wisdom to them. Now, the issue comes, at least for me, uh, when we start trying to uh, parse out different situations in which we are taught. So, let's say, for instance, I'm teaching. Uh, a class. I'm standing up before a uh, uh, a mixed class of uh, men and women in that class, and I'm I'm talking about a particular passage or something like that. And let's say there's a, a a lady that has a comment, and she begins, you know, sharing some kind of wisdom that she has gained o- over her life. And it's something that I've never considered or never thought before or uh, didn't know prior to that. And all of a mm-hmm. sudden in her comment, I have learned something new. Mm-hmm. As, as she then taught me something, we would say, yeah, she, she taught me something, right? Right. Paul says, I, I don't permit a woman to teach or, and this, I think this is uh, important, or to have authority over. Um, and so... That question of what constitutes teaching, I think in this particular context, in Paul's writing, it would have to do with that leadership role um, in the corporate gathering. Mm -hmm. Whether that's in a worship or whether that's in a Bible class setting, um, she would not be the one that's up front leading um, that particular gathering. Right, right. And there's... There's a reason for that, and I think Paul gives it to us. And and so, anyway, that's the answer to that first question. I'm sure we've got more coming up. So Yeah, that's a great answer, great perception. Um, you know, 
I like what you're doing there. We can't just be so restrictive with that word teaching because women teach all the time and they teach some wonderful life-changing lessons. And if we go over to what Paul says about worship uh, in Ephesians and Colossians, specifically in singing, Paul says that through our singing, what are we supposed to do? Teach. (laughs) Teaching and admonishing. So if we can teach through singing, I guess that would then mean that if women can't teach and if women had to remain completely silent, they should not be singing uh, with the gathered church. And that's clearly not uh, what Paul is getting at here. I think it's a good rule of thumb, as you've said, if a man totally sits down and he is no longer leading this session and the woman is the prominent um, position and resource for information and education, uh, we could be getting here on some ground of of not abiding by these instructions of Scripture, right. of a woman learning in quietness uh, and submission. Anything else on that? You know, I just think, and this may be kind of where our discussion is going, is, is why, you know, why would Paul say this, you know, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of a lot of people who would who would look at statements that Paul makes in his writings, and, and this being one of them, and they would say Paul is some, somehow uh, kind of, you know, this woman hater. He, you know, he's really wanting to oppress women and kind of hold them down. And, and some would say, you know, that's really what, you know, uh, historical Christianity has been about is the right. oppression. Um, but Paul, and that's why I love this passage, is because this is where we see Paul explaining why this is the teaching. Um, it's not something that comes from him. It's not, you know, his opinion, but rather there's a specific reason as to why. Um, and and when he says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, that's not some arbitrary statement. And that's not, uh, again, something that he has uh, developed in his own mind or his own uh, practice or teaching, but rather this is something that comes uh, that we see in verse 13. And I think verse 13 is the critical passage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and we're we're quickly approaching verse 13, but also put things in context. Um, Timothy's going to be ministering in Ephesus. Ephesus is a very well-educated city. So in Paul's mind, this is not a matter of who's smarter or who is more capable because I'm sure that in Ephesus, just like today in Louisville or North Dallas, there are some women in that church that would probably be a better presenter and communicator than Timothy, right? I mean, it's not that only men are skilled in this area. So he's not saying we're going to use our varsity team and the JV team has to remain silent. He says, no, there's a there's a God-given mandate and design for this, just like there will be with childbearing, which he'll mention in verse 15, which we'll end with um, in a few moments. I I do want to say before we move on, we have an example of a powerhouse husband and wife teaching team from Ephesus, and that's Aquila and Priscilla, right? right? And she was very much involved in the teaching, just like her husband. It was just in a different domain, in different arena. Yeah, and and to you know to your point, you know Paul, uh, who is not a, a woman hater, mentions Priscilla as a fellow laborer. Mm-hmm. He also 
Euodia uh, and Syntyche, uh, in uh, as well as uh, you know as fellow laborers. Um, and so, you know, I think again, this is not about something that some agenda that Paul has, but rather this is by design uh, from God, and I would say from the point of creation. Right. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I, I'm thankful you're saying what you're saying about Paul not being a woman hater because if you, <laughs> if you ever just make a spreadsheet of all the people that Paul compliments in the New Testament by name, specifically what he says about them, you will quickly find that he probably compliments more women than he does men and certainly has nicer things to say about the women than the men. <laughs> <laughs> with, <laughs> with the exception of Euodia and Syntyche, he has nothing negative to say about women. For yeah. us, for us guys, man, he lets us have it and basically say y'all are a bunch of scoundrels. But you know, he's <laughs> he's very, very complimentary and supportive of of women. Now, you've mentioned verse thirteen a few times, and we'll kind of just couple thirteen and fourteen together. I'll read those again. Uh, Paul's reasoning for this: Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner so this next question what does adam and eve have to do with uh, women being silent and submissive in the gathering of the corporate church i'm convinced that it goes all the way back to god's creative order and and so that's why in verse 13 he makes that statement and and explains i think for us why this is the case why his teaching to Timothy and, and that his desire for Timothy to impart within the church in Ephesus is this way. It's because Adam was formed first, then Eve. There's a creative order to God's design. Um, and so, you know, something that I would want to point out, there's there's three areas in which men and women are, are in every way equal. Mm-hmm. Um, we are equal in nature. Um, We've been created in the image of God, Genesis 1, verse 27. You know, God created male and female. We, we are created in the image of God. Uh, and so very much in our nature, we are equal, but also in salvation, we're equal as well. And, and we see this in uh, Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27, you know, that um, that all who baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ and um, and so in our salvation, me and Lindsay, um, you and, and Suzanne, we are equal in our nature. Um, but also we're equal in relationship. Uh, and so, you, you know, you can look at a you know, passage like, um, you know, in First Peter 3, verse 7 tells us that we are fellow heirs. First mm-hmm. uh, Corinthians 7 uh, verse four explains that in our relationship with one another, we are equal because my body is not my own, but it belongs to my wife. Her body is not her own, but it belongs to me. And so we have this equal relationship. We have equal salvation. We have equal nature. But the Bible teaches us that we have different roles. Right. And I think that's where a lot of people get frustrated is because they don't they don't see the um, the different roles as being something that is is from the beginning. Right. But exactly what Paul is saying: Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's why it's because this is God's creative order. Right. Um, certainly, in our world today, 
um, in the secular world, um, you know, I think I think we we see uh, um, some discrepancy, at least you know, in in our more recent past, maybe more so than we do today, um, where it did appear that that women were not on an equal playing field, secularly speaking, with men. Um, but as you pointed out, there are women that are way more capable than certain men in, in certain areas. Um, and I appreciate the fact that even today we are um, uh, doing better anyway at equaling that playing field in a secular uh, way. And that probably is uh, playing into the dynamics of church, you know, mm-hmm. well, if, if it's, if it's this way in the secular world, why, why aren't women equal within the church? Well, again, back to verse 13, Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's not about trying to oppress women, but this is God's will. Right. Yeah. This is not a cultural argument. This is a creation argument. And to your point, we both know women that are much more capable than we are. Well, we're both married to women much more capable. Uh, <laughs> I would say that both Lindsay and Suzanne are highly more intelligent than Keith and Jacob. Um, but yeah, that, that's not the message that people run to. They run to a uh, devaluing argument or a um, oppression argument, and that's that's not the heart of this. And I loved your statement, equal but different. Mm-hmm. Um, to borrow a secular analogy, you just returned from Washington, D.C. Um, with the way our government's designed. No one is going to say that the states of Texas and Oregon are the same. Right. We're very different mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But you know what? We both have two senators from our state. We're equal in our representation in Washington. Um, doesn't make one better than the other, though I would say, um, you know, Texas forever on that, but but we are still, we're still equals. Someone once said, you know, two people can ride a horse, but one person has to agree to sit up front. And, and it's kind of this way when it comes to uh, leadership in the church. And this idea of silence, Keith, let's, let's chew on that for just a second. Um, again, we can't get so rigid with that because our our perceptions and conclusions will become inconsistent because uh, Preston Crest has great singing. Louisville has great singing. The women are not silent in the sense that there's no audible noise. You hear them singing. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear women say amen when mm-hmm. a preacher makes a comment. Well, they're no longer silent. So Paul's right. not getting here at there cannot be any audible noise. Right. He's he's getting at the fact that there needs to be the respect for the God-designed leadership model in the church. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think, too, uh, the tendency for us in this particular text of, of 1 Timothy 2 is to transition from, as we've been talking, a symbolic, you know, uh, statement from uh, Paul regarding our demeanor before God, we transition immediately into, in our minds, very physical, um, you know, a, a very straightforward, practical statement from him that women are to keep silent. 
But again, I think I think that might be a, a, a violation of um, intellectual integrity as we're as we're reading through, because the context would lend itself to, again, a continued understanding of what's in the background. This is when we approach the throne of God and um, kind of in the background of this, I think, too, is um, built into God's uh, creative order is, is this idea of submission and headship. And, you know, we see it in other texts as well. Um, in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, it's verse 3 that says, uh, Paul writes, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Mm-hmm. So we got there. So Christ is the head of man. Um, the head of the wife is her husband, uh, and the head of Christ is God. So there's headship. But then you go to Ephesians 5, uh, and you see a, a passage there where Paul is talking about husbands and wives and particularly mentions that wives are to be submissive to their husbands. Um, and so you have uh, headship and submission playing out throughout the text. And I think that goes back again to the creative order of God, that there is this design that God has. Right. And woman to have the kind of demeanor that says, I'm going to rise above you as a male uh, and, and, and take over this leadership role. Well, that violates the order of God. And that's not the humble spirit, the modest uh, apparel that a woman who is a follower of Jesus ought to have. Yeah, excellent thoughts. I'm glad you bring up 1 Corinthians because as you're saying there, there is that hierarchy in the text where the only one who does not answer or submit to someone else is God himself. Even Christ submits to God um, and man submits to Christ. So everybody in one way or another is involved in submission. It's just who we submit to and when uh, and why. And Keith, honestly, um, until recent weeks, I didn't realize that maybe the strongest argument for this is verse 15, which is that strange statement where Paul says, hey, but women are going to be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. Why does he bring up childbearing and why does he connect that to salvation uh this i'm convinced and i may be wrong but it's my opinion that this goes all the way back again to creation uh and and god's order and i think too the 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 subsequent fall and then the curses that are pronounced um there in uh, genesis chapter three there are curses that are pronounced individually on the serpent, on the man, and on the woman. Uh, and as you are aware, the, the curse on the woman is pain and childbearing. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> now, some have suggested that uh, this idea that she will be saved through childbearing has to do with Mary uh, and the birth of Jesus, which it may it, there may be hints at that. Um but it may be it may be the fact that what we see um, comes all the way again, given the context and given the fact that in verse thirteen he talks about Adam being formed first, then 
Eve. And then he mentions the fall in verse 14, that the woman was deceived. She became a transgressor. From all of that comes those curses that are pronounced. And the childbearing issue, the pain in childbearing as the curse for the woman, um, is what she must endure as a result of the fall. Now, um, when he mentions it here in verse 15, um, the question that I would have is that if we're strictly speaking about childbearing, and if it's a very physical uh, statement here um, concerning childbearing, then what about those fine Christian ladies who are unable to bear a child? Mm-hmm. What about them? Are they not saved? Um, so I don't think he's strictly speaking about physical childbearing, though it's a reference back to what I think uh, of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. But also, he's probably hinting at the very fact that through the birth of Christ, there is salvation. If, and I love the last part of verse 15, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness um, and and the ESV says with self control, um, right? Per- is uh, is what I think the NIV says. Um, and so I, I think again in the context, he's wanting he's wanting to get across our approach to God. Am I humble? Am I faithful to His will, or am I exalting myself? Great words, um, great explanation, a lot deeper than I'm going to take it. Here's just a very surface-level way of looking at it. I think here's another example of, back to your words, equal but different. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter how hard I try, I'm still not going to be able to bear a child, right? God right. did not design me with that ability. Um, yeah. That's just not my man-made um, design from God. And now that is different in that this is not a matter of ability like it is with women teaching. You know, women can certainly teach, but it does get back to the uh, equal but different. We all have a role to play. And for men, that role is going to be public teaching and spiritual leadership to the uh, corporately gathered church. And I'd also point out, as, as you did so well, am I closer to God because I can bear a child? No. It just shows that I'm utilizing the ability God uh, originally gave me. So back to the same logic, am I closer to God because I'm the one up teaching? No. It's just me fulfilling the role that God gave me. But I'm not any closer to God behind the pulpit than I am uh, the person in the audience following his will. And as Paul says here, continuing in faith and love and holiness. And um, this is just God's design. We all have a role to play. It's not playing favorites. It's not, um, you know, looking down on other people or being chauvinistic. It is just following the design of Scripture. Anything else you'd add to that? I think you said it very well. Um, Again, I think this overall context from verse 8 down through verse 15 is is dealing with our um, demeanor, our attitude, approach before God. Am I mm-hmm. doing His will, or am I seeking my own will? That's the challenge I think that we all face. 
Well, next week we'll talk about something a little bit less controversial, and that's just elders. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing ever controversial gets talked about with elders. Um, no. <laughs> but Keith, thank you so much uh, for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you so much. And as always, if you have questions, you want to continue this dialogue, we would love to do that. You can email me at uh, jacob at pressandcrest.org. And Keith, uh, do you want to give your email address? Yeah, you can uh, reach me at keith at org anytime. I'm glad to know you have a computer, Keith. That's, Thanks. That's good. At least it has spell check. <laughs> it does have spell check. It does have spell check. <laughs> All right, if you were still in Arkansas, I'd say send Keith a fax on his fax machine, but he's he's upgraded to uh, to email at least here in the Dallas area. Moving on up. Moving on up. Thank you for being with us today. As always, keep your eyes on heaven, and we look forward to talking with you next time. <laughs>